I'm going to talk about um, inequality and uh, environmental issues very much within the UK context. So I'm just going to start by outlining some of the issues in particular in relation to inequality in, in environment that are perhaps different in the UK from some other countries. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about my take on where, where these things sit politically uh, within the UK context. Um, and I'm going to end hopefully with a little uh, attempt at a, a silver lining and a hope for the future. Um, so... Within inequality in the UK, um, uh, the, the way in which inequality manifests itself in many rich countries, but particularly in the UK, has really been changing. So since 1990, uh, overall measures of inequality, such as the Gini coefficient, have remained relatively stable. And what that hides is the massive runaway um, inequality at the very top end. And that's not just incomes, but particularly wealth. And the UK, I mean, many countries have seen a pattern towards this form of inequality, but the UK is a real standout. So um, we've actually had to create a new categorisation, um, uh, a new economic categorisation for this sort of runaway wealth inequality um, called ultra-high net worth individuals. Um, so these are people who are worth over 30 million. Um, the UK is seventh in the world for the number uh, of these people um, uh, uh, for the given amount of population in the UK. Um, and the, the number of those ultra-high net worth individuals has risen by almost 40% in the last 10 years. So when we're talking about inequality, let's not be fooled by those overall measures of inequality. We need to be looking at the very top end. Um, and it's worth also saying that any estimations of inequality within that uh, top end um, are underestimations. We're still way behind in terms of how to measure that. We're missing lots of the wealth and income uh, because for all sorts of sort of statistical reasons and uh, 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 the way in which people sort of um, hide their money makes it very difficult to measure. So this soaring wealth is driven uh, particularly in the UK by the extent of financialization that we have in the UK. So we're, we're one of the most financialized economies. Um, and that's not only uh, the size of the financial sector as a proportion of our overall economy in the UK, but also the level and complexity um, of the financial sector in the UK. And what that means, of course, is that in creating more and more different ways um, uh, to uh, invest, basically we're, we're finding more and more effective ways to turn wealth into more wealth. So that basic... Um, vicious cycle uh, of, of um, money turning into more money um, is particularly strong in the UK's particularly financialised economy. Um, uh, and that has a particular effect as well in increasing the prices of assets. Um, and we've seen that um, particularly in housing, where, of course, that's a, a particular asset that for some people might be an investment, but for other people, obviously, it's homes. Um, uh, and that's had a, a profound effect on, on people's quality of life in the UK. The UK also um, uh, sees a very particular kind of inequality in regional inequality. So the UK is one of the most regionally unequal countries, the, the regionally most equal uh, country in Europe, if you're looking at the proportion uh, of uh, a country's overall economy that goes to different regions uh, of that country. Um, so there's a lot of discussion about the north-south divide, and that's absolutely right. There are major divisions broadly between the sort of north of the country and the south. But even more than that, the, really, the stark um, inequality and, and the, way, the, the inequality that pushes us to the top of those sort of international comparisons is the inequality between the rest of the country and London. And even beyond that, between uh, London, outer London, greater London, and the very centre of London. So a vast proportion of the wealth in our economy uh, and the, the wealth that's responsible for that sort of spiralling high-level inequality uh, probably is sort of, sits within sort of two miles of where we're sitting, sitting here today. Um, so it's, in a strange way, it's a geographically incredibly concentrated issue, some of these issues around um, wealth inequality and financialisation in the UK. 
Um, in terms of the environment, I feel like today I've, I've heard so many um, wonderful uh, talks about environment, so I won't, won't rehearse too much the, the general issue around sort of carbon footprint and greenhouse gas emissions, and that's been very well made by Kevin Anderson, as well as many others. Um, but it's just worth saying that across the board, um, uh, the UK has a lot of work to do on environmental issues. So the Environmental Audit Committee, um, which is a committee of members of parliament um, that sits outside of government and holds uh, government to account on the environment, did what they call an environmental scorecard in 2015 um, and they had 10 different areas of the environment and they marked the, um, the government as unsatisfactory on, or deteriorating in all 10 of those different categories. So this is one of the, we're one of the richest, one of the most developed countries in the world. We have, um, uh, you know, a whole host of um, uh, sort of research and development that should be telling us how to protect our environment, but we're struggling on all aspects um, of the environment. So I won't run through them, but two I want to pull out in particular. Um, the first is renewable energy. So just 8.3% of the en energy consumption here in the UK um, is from renewable sources. Um, and a study by Bertelsmann Foundation ranks the UK 33rd out of 34 OECD countries. So we are we're improving in recent years, we have to acknowledge that, but we are shamefully um, behind in terms of renewable energy. Um, the other aspect I want to highlight is air pollution. So again, air pollution, after a, um, a sort of improvement over a number of years, we're beginning to dip again in, in terms of air pollution. Um, and we've been failing to meet EU targets for nitrogen dioxide pollution um, and have actually faced legal proceedings from the EU on this. Um, and I don't need to um, talk to a room full of people involved in, in health to tell you the, the sort of very immediate impacts that that has on health in the UK and, of course, the inequitable impacts. So air pollution is just a, um, an incredibly sad study, really, on the double injustice that the people who are suffering most from air pollution, people who are in deprived and polluted neighbourhoods, are, of course, also the people who can't afford to do the kinds of things that pollutes those environments in the first place. Um, so, <laughs> this is a very brief, and there's obviously many other issues um, related to uh, inequality in the environment, but on any account, um, uh, the UK is really struggling on inequality and environment. Um, so how are we dealing with this politically? Where, where, where are we sitting? So um, uh, a beautiful illustration of um, the UK's approach uh, to these two issues um, uh, came out with the UK's political response to the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, so the Sustainable Development Goals, of course, unlike the Millennium Development Goals, were incredibly um, progressive and exciting in the sense that they included a whole range of things that went way beyond sort of um, uh, eliminating poverty and included particularly, um, very excitingly, the first global um, target for reducing within-country uh, economic inequality, but also a whole range of, of, of environmental commitments as well, over and above the sort of um, Paris Agreement aspects as well. Um, so... Uh, what was the UK's uh, response to this? So Oliver Letwin, who at the time uh, was um, in, overall in charge of sustainable development within the UK, was asked by the Environmental Audit Committee uh, what our plans were for implementing the SDGs uh, within, within the UK domestically. You know, massive challenge for the UK. Issues of environment, inequality, the two areas that we, we really struggle on. Um, his response was, we don't have very much difficulty in meeting these goals. Our compliance with these goals is the easy bit. The difficult bit is going to get, be getting the rest of the world to comply. Um, so I think that level of naivety and underestimation um, of, of the, the challenges that we face 
um, uh, is really striking. And Justin Greening, um, a few months later, was um, uh, hauled up in front of the Environmental Audit Committee again. And, and effectively, her answer was, oh, it's fine, we, we've got it covered, because we, we're just going to follow the Tory manifesto, and that will get us to where we need to be. Um, so I haven't uh, read the Tory manifesto recently, but um, as far as I remember, I don't remember anything there about decoupling, absolute employment, and certainly no targets to reduce inequality. So either Greening hasn't read the SDGs or she hasn't read the Tory manifesto. Um, and I'd uh, take a bet that it's the SDGs. Um, so it seems like on the sort of Alcohol Anonymous scale, on the 12-step programme, um, definitely in terms of inequality, but arguably as well in terms of the climate, we, ha we haven't achieved step one in many, in many um, uh, areas of political life, particularly in terms of inequality. We, we haven't acknowledged that, we, that these are problems yet. So days like today where we talk um, about the solutions and there have been arguments about citizens' income, yes or no, and all, all sorts of different issues around how can we achieve these things, is a sort of sobering point, <laughs> which is that vast um, parts of the political spectrum don't yet think that these are questions that we need to tackle. <clears throat> um, and don't be fooled uh, by Theresa May's recent sort of hijacking of the language of inequality. Um, so not long after Theresa May's sort of opening speech in which she talked uh, very passionately about inequality affecting the UK um, and that those who are sort of uh, struggling in, in the economy, the left behind, um, just uh, shortly after that she was debating the issue of academies uh, within the House of Commons and made it absolutely crystal clear that what she means by inequality is reducing inequality of opportunity. So if we get, give everyone a chance, an equal chance to get to the top, then we don't need to worry about inequality of outcomes. And she said that we don't need to worry about inequality of outcomes. Um, that reveals a total misunderstanding, partly, between how social mobility works and the incredibly close association between social mobility um, and uh, absolute um, uh, inequality. Um, but it also sort of demonstrates, um, I think, it's, this is not a party political issue. I mean, May was, is just the latest reincarnation um, of uh, 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 governments in the UK that have broadly taken that approach to inequality. Um, and certainly under the Labour government, um, famously did a lot to reduce poverty, but did nothing to reduce inequality. Um, and it's notable that the UK has never had, no government in the UK has ever had an explicit target to reduce economic inequality. We've had targets to reduce poverty, we've had targets to increase wages, but we've never had, and, and we're even quite poor at reporting on, uh, on uh, uh, where we are in terms of economic inequality. Um, uh, uh, even more recently as well, we have recently dropped um, uh, the commitment to report on how the budget affects um, economic inequality. So now the government can uh, come up with budgets and it, it, we don't know what effect it will have on economic inequality. Um, and uh, we've also dropped the socioeconomic aspect um, of the equality um, assessments. So again, the UK government has, is actually is moving backwards in many ways in terms of how we are measuring the impact of our policies um, on inequality. In terms of um, sort of political commitment around the environment, I don't want to say too much because Dave is very much the expert, um, but uh, in terms of sort of attitudes to growth in particular, so I, um, I worked originally, um, as Catherine said, in Public Health England, looking at health inequalities, um, and my job now in the New Economics Foundation, uh, the, the, the work on wellbeing, I work very closely with the Cabinet Office, um, and also a team within the Office for National Statistics, who, and, and within all those three areas of government, there 
there are people who really, really get it. They really get the social determinants of health. There's a fantastic team in Public Health England working with the Marmot Review, thinking about social determinants, really trying to push their colleagues um, to think much more uh, sort of structurally about, um, about health. Um, the, the team in the Cabinet Office as well, wellbeing team, fantastic people doing fantastic work. And it's hard to overestimate how hard it is, even sort of within the systems of power, to make change. And that's because the, uh, the, the kind of economic imperative around economic growth is so deeply embedded, I think, into the government's DNA. So that even if you are a civil servant being paid a salary from government to pursue an aim, that aim is secondary to economic growth. And there's a few um, sort of examples of that. So when we first start the civil service, you're given a civil service manual, um, which I'll confess I did not read all of. It's a very thick document. Um, but there's a wonderful phrase in it, um, which is, is talking about how you work with your ministers. So say you're, you know, you've got Minister of Health, Minister of Environment, um, and it talks about how you can take the, the sort of the targets that the, those ministers are trying to achieve. And then it gives you another set of criteria, and it says, as, you are, um, as you're pursuing these targets, you also need to follow these other principles in order to make sure that you are, are um, combining these, these indicators as well with increasing GDP growth. So is that, like, of course, different politicians will have different aims, but economic growth sits above politics. You know, that, that's something that the civil service, we don't, we don't need to follow politicians on that. This economic growth is, is you know, part of the role of government. Um, and overcoming that is, is incredibly difficult. And it's reflected as well in the increasing power of the Treasury. Um, so I don't know if you've noticed, I, I've barely seen any political commentary on this, but the Treasury has started making announcements about all sorts of things that um, I didn't know had anything to do with Treasury issues. So uh, the Treasury issues of making announcements about uh, academies, a whole load of different policy areas, things that traditionally wouldn't be seen as the business of the Treasury. But that supremacy of, um, of economics, of traditional market-based economics above other areas of policies within the UK political system is incredibly difficult uh, uh, to crack. Um, while I was at PHE, um, so our, our aims were around reducing health inequalities, um, but we spent an amazing amount of time having to talk to politicians or even colleagues within health, making the case for reducing health inequalities on the basis that it would promote economic growth. Um, and we do these kind of things so much that I sometimes forget how crazy that is, but it's, it's completely upside down. So what, what's the point in an economy unless it's to promote well-being uh, and reduce the inequality that is that if somebody's born in one area, they will live so much less than another area? I can't think of anything more fundamental. <laughs> um, but I think we can forget so often um, uh, which way around those two things need to come. Um, so that's been rather pessimistic, but I wanted to end <laughs> on a bit of a, a sort of um, a silver lining or, or perhaps a sort of naive hope. Um, and that is that one of the key components of our current economic system, I think, is our labour market. Um, so while the UK economy fails in almost every respect, we, we do pretty well on unemployment. Um, so we've had relatively low unemployment, and unemployment has also been falling recently. And I think there's two implications of that. The first implication is that it keeps us very busy. So while people in poverty used to um, have time, now they are running around doing maybe one or even two uh, minimum wage jobs. Um, the other implication of that is that because unemployment has remained so low, 
there's, there's, a, there's a tiny aspect of that sort of trickle-down myth is kept alive. It's the idea that, yes, yes, of course, people are getting super rich, but at least they still need us to drive their cars and clean their homes. Um, uh, and so that sort of, it keeps, keeps us going. It sort of keeps us muddling along with the, within the current system. Um, now, I'm not a technology expert at all, um, and I've just been reading around a little bit um, in terms of the sort of predictions at the moment about what the new wave of technology is going to do to our labour market. Um, and there's lots of disagreements about the extent to which things like automation, artificial intelligence are going to fundamentally reshape our labour market. And I won't um, be bold enough to take a position on how far it will, but I think we can know that, that it will change our economy, and it is changing our economy already. So if you look at the example of Uber recently, um, one of the few sort of good news stories recently was the um, Uber drivers coming together, unionising and uh, making a case that they needed to be um, uh, recognised as uh, employ employees and get the rights of employees um, uh, uh, as and all, all the sort of pay issues that come with that. But overhanging that um, uh, sort of hopeful story, of course, was the fact that Uber has been very explicit for a long time that their dream is to have driverless cars. So, so yes, it's great if we can unionise and come together for the things where we need labour, but what do we do in those markets where they, they, they don't need us anymore? That fundamental sort of lever of power and control, I think, um, uh, potentially is going to be eroded in some parts of the market economy. Um, and so, in, in many ways, this points to a dystopian future, um, but it also, I think, might be the last vestiges of that sort of traditional idea of uh, the economic dream, the sort of um, uh, trickle-down economics. I think at the point at which the rich don't even need us to drive their cars and clean their bathrooms, <laughs> it might be that, that that myth really does crumble. So the level of sort of shift in how we're thinking about the economy in terms of growth, the kind of that, that embedded um, uh, commitment to economic growth that I talked about within the civil service, it might be that that has to shift anyway because the labour market on which it relies crumbles. And at that point, I think we potentially have an opportunity to fundamentally rethink what the economy is for and think about how we can harness those sort of technological changes uh, to improve not only environmental outcomes, but of course, human well-being and inequality. Thank you.